0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards for 2022. I'm Martin van der Business Editor of The Spectator, and it's my pleasure to introduce this year's Midlands and Southwest Regional Awards finalists. We invited finalists from those regions to lunch with us, respectively, in Birmingham and Bristol, and to pitch their businesses to our distinguished panel of judges. That's in-house judges from The Spectator and our fine sponsor Investec and some guest judges who you'll hear from as well. For the Birmingham lunch, the Midlands region, you'll be hearing from MOM incubators, hybrid air vehicles, and Bambino Mio. After each finalist gives us a short version of their pitch, our judges, Steve Hewitt, who's a non-executive director of Gymshark and a successful entrepreneur in his own right, Clive Borden, Chief Operating Officer of Warwick Music and a previous winner of these awards, and Michelle White, representing Investec, will give us their view on each of the pitches. Next, we went to Bristol. The businesses there that we met were Neighbourly, Octopus Hydrogen, Verto and Zap Map. To discuss them, I was joined by Sam Wright and Michelle White from Investec again, Nathan Goddard, an entrepreneur from Student Roofs as a guest judge and Nicholas Hardy, uh, who has had a long career uh, on the finance side of major public companies. First, let's hear from Birmingham, starting with Bambino Mio.
1: Starting a business selling reusable nappies in the mid-90s, everybody thought we were mad. Everybody was using disposables, and wasn't it what everybody was going to use from there on in? So it it was definitely a hard start, and we were definitely selling to hardened environmentalists when we first started, as far as reusable nappies is concerned. I mean, disposables is a huge environmental problem. 90 billion disposable nappies are are thrown away every year in the world. They go into landfill, take up to 500 years to decompose. And on the other side, it is one of the single most promoted consumer products in the world. So we started from our terraced house in in Northampton when we first started selling mail order. It was pre-internet days and we would advertise in the back of baby magazines, people would send in their orders with a cheque, and we've sort of grown it from there. I mean, I think we were probably a purpose-driven business before that became a buzzword, and one of the really interesting things about our business model is, of course, our purpose aligns completely with our commercial aims.
0: And I'm going to start by asking Michelle what she thought of the company and the presentation.
2: Thank you, Martin. Amazing presentation from Guy, who co-founded the company with his wife back in the late 90s, actually, and has developed it into a hugely successful business since then. Interesting. I love the way he talked about the complete alignment between their purpose and the actual sort of commercial aspect of what they're doing. So they, they set out with a purpose to help the world with the problem of disposing of 90 billion nappies a year i think was the number he quoted which is obviously staggering when you when you hear it like that and they're certainly well on the journey to to helping the world deal with that they've recently sort of gone through a a progression with the business selling to a portion to a large investor and he talked about that that's taking them on the next leg of their journey it's um Something of keen interest to me as the mother of two young boys. I've certainly been a buyer of many nappies over the years and um, have recently sort of explored using some of their products and I'm and, and going down that path now. So um, definitely something of value. The Sustainability Award that we're thinking about keenly this year, obviously this plays very keenly into that and um, look forward to hearing more about their development over the coming years.
0: Right.
3: Steve, what did you think? Yeah, 100% agree uh, with Michelle. Guys, only way to describe it would be passion. I'm a firm believer that the most successful companies have a North Star that they make no apologies for. So their purpose, clearly the values came across of the organisation in the presentation. And yet, when you've got purpose, you've got to make sure that the maths work as well. So, you know is the business model that Guy and the team are building, is that sustainable also, as well as the actual product itself. And he clearly demonstrated not only the passion, but also the knowledge of his own organization. He knew that from top to bottom, but his knowledge of the actual market uh, globally was also very, very impressive. And I think he, um, he summarized it as they want to be the market leader. Well, they're definitely on that track. And as Michelle said there, taking some investment earlier or now with BGF, I think can really, really help them get to uh, some great heights in the future.
0: Yeah, BGF is the business growth fund. It is. Which they've taken investment from. And then real,
3: real credible fund, Martin. Yeah.
0: yeah. Clive, what did you think?
3: I would
4: agree with comments from both Michelle and, and Steve thus far. I mean, there, there's something highly commendable about starting a business knowing you're competing against some of the world's leading, biggest, strongest, financially resilient brands. Mm-hmm. Building it gradually, organically, over more than 20 years. And what, what impressed me was that Guy talked around the reasons for the investment and what it would achieve. So, in terms of structuring the sales process, structuring the finance and the team around him, and particularly bringing on new talent to grow the business. Because every, you know, every entrepreneur knows they need a team around them. They talk a lot about it, but uh, Guy's well on the pathway to, to success with the team that he's starting to build using that investment. So, that was particularly impressive, I felt.
0: Good. Thanks very much. So, that's Bambino Mio and its co-founder Guy Shan Sheaf, And uh, yeah, it was a business I think we all warmed to the, the passion and the purpose of that business. One footnote on Bambino Mio, I asked Guy whether he could make a comparison in the whole life cycle of use of renewable nappies versus disposable ones if we took into account detergent, water usage, spin drying, all the elements, and also the, the materials from which his products are used. He said that exercise has been done, that uh, his reusable products are not only reusable many times for the same baby, but could be used for eight babies. Um, rather startling figure. Anyway, his conclusion was that actually over the life cycle of the product, there would be something like a 20 or 25 percent saving in, in energy use. So there is an answer to that rather complex question. Second one, in a related sector, MOM incubators. Chief Finance Officer Richard Marlowe came to present to us and set himself the challenge of actually assembling an incubator uh, from, I should think, about 10 components while talking to us. And he did, he did do that and switched it on. So we've seen the thing working. MOM is a
5: medical device company. Our mission is to develop healthcare technology to give every child the best start in life, wherever they are in the world. So in the UK, about one in seven babies are born prematurely. Around the world, there's 15 million babies born prematurely. And preterm birth complications are the leading cause of death for children under five. So we've worked on this for five years, and our ethos has been to try and build something that's simple and easy to use. Our incubator's been used in five hospitals across the NHS and we have sent 51 incubators over to Ukraine and they're in use in Ukraine. So in terms of the Ukraine, we, we estimate we've helped save the lives of over 250 babies, a number that will,
0: uh, will increase every week and we're uh, trying to do more and more to, to to increase. Again, this is a business, as it were, from from the heart, addressing the particular issues of premature babies of whom there are 15 million born globally one in seven babies born prematurely so the purpose was impressive i think steve what did you think of it as a business proposition
3: yeah really good as you said you know to to present in front of a dragon's den style environment this afternoon is tough to but to assemble incubator all at the same time and eat lunch was uh, was particularly outstanding they had sort of a a two-pronged attack it was all about new technology but also rethinking some outdated technology within the sector the business has been going for five years I think Richard was really honest I love the the sort of vulnerability that he showed as a leader within the company about actually they didn't always quite get some of the decisions right in the early days but you know their resilience and uh, that passion to purpose has actually made them actually land their their first set of orders with i believe five nhs hospitals so you know i'd love to see that go to you know 50 and and 500 institutions i'm sure in in time talking from a personal perspective i was a premature baby myself so i could really you know see the impact that this has not only on children's life but actually parents uh, around that child as well really their key differentiator is can they take this concept and i believe they will into a own home with their whole mobile initiative in the actual product itself. So, huge amount of resilience, huge amount of opportunity for the guys.
0: Thanks very much. One of the things we learned about this business is that they have sent in a number of these incubators into the Ukraine, which is saving the lives of babies in <coughs> Ukraine right now. Clive, what did you think?
4: I echo Steve's words. Really interesting presentation from Richard. I mean he described it up front as technology seeking to solve an unmet need and it very, very firmly hits that on the on the head. I mean it's it's quite an interesting business. It's it's a little earlier in terms of its gestation and commercialization right now. And therefore you you got the sense that it's very much at that curve of innovation and market disruption that we talk about continuing these awards Martin. There's a lot of places this business could go. Clearly they've got to get the structure, the funding and the, and the commercialisation pathway right but at the moment you get the sense that this is a business that's got a huge amounts of promise, clearly has a strong social purpose and the, and the founder you know, is, a, is clearly a very innovative person. So very excited to watch the presentation and, and you know, look forward to seeing where the business goes over the next few years. Michelle,
0: clearly that's another one that would resonate with you <laughs> as, as a mother. <laughs>
2: You're right there, and actually, yes, my eldest son started his life in an incubator, so there was certainly an emotional attachment to the story that, that we were hearing today. And you talked about the one in seven babies born prematurely, I think. He talked about 15 million babies worldwide per annum in that position, and the fact that for every one degree, one degree loss of temperature increases the chance of the child passing away by 28%. So um hugely valuable if they can do anything to help that. And the, the fact that they've built a battery-powered incubator was the innovative part here, because traditionally they've all been not able to run on batteries. And I think that the product, he said, was 80% lighter than a standard incubator, hence ability to send it into Ukraine and all of these other places. I think, like Steve, for me, it's interesting to think about taking it home and the business model and the financials around that because obviously these would have to be purchased by the NHS and sent home with the families so if they can crack that in terms of that actually being a safe way of looking after these children in a financially attractive way for the NHS then you're hitting lots of excellent notes there.
0: Thank you very much Michelle. I mean, we learn all sorts of things during these these presentations And a barrier for a business like that is how difficult it is to sell in to the NHS when the NHS has so many issues to deal with at once, is so distracted by its most urgent problems and so on. So you can see why that's a a difficulty. Anyway, that was an impressive business and an impressive product assembled before our very eyes. So we move on. Hybrid air vehicles presented to us by... Hufa Gwyn. That's a Welsh name, H-W-F-A, pronounced Hufa Gwyn. And it's a business which is developing and is in an advanced state of developing a new kind of aircraft, which probably not right to describe it as an airship because it's different from an airship, but it does have a very large helium balloon effect inside it, which gives it some of the lift and it it doesn't look like a winged aircraft it looks more like an airship i think and the first models would carry a hundred passengers or equivalent freight loads and because of its aerodynamics because of the nature of the design it's capable of a 90 percent reduction in emissions compared to a conventional aircraft Uh, it would initially be powered by conventional turbine engines, kerosene-fueled, but much lower powered than for the aircraft we're familiar with now. And eventually, it could be powered either by electricity or or hydrogen. Uh, this company is on the cusp of commercialization. It has a pipeline of potential orders. It has quite a large sum in orders for which deposits are paid by by airlines and end-users It has military as well as civilian uses and so on. So what you might call, if it's not a bad pun, a blue sky business. I mean, it won't be flying the aircraft till 2026, but that's not so far away. What we've done is design a whole new
6: type of aircraft. This isn't a type of aircraft that has been designed and built before. And by the time we bring it into service in 2026, Airlander, which is our key product, should be able to deliver a 90% emission saving versus other aircraft undertaking comparable roles. So that is a massive change in emissions, and critically, it's a change that we can deliver in the near term. So we use inert helium what that does really it doesn't make us fly but it negates the aircraft's most of the aircraft's empty weight so that when we're using our fuel in our aerodynamics it's really focused on lifting your cargo rather than the aircraft itself and that creates a huge efficiency one of the other amazing things that that does is it means that we can actually operate without a conventional runway i can use a tarmac runway if you give it to me but actually we can take off and land from grass sand, water marshland any reasonably flat open surface and that means as well as taking emissions out we can break the hub and spoke model which the aviation sector is so dependent on. Steve
0: what did you think of it?
3: Yeah really interesting one of the stats if I got it correct in listening to the presentation is that aviation industry uh, right now represents three percent of global emissions Um, what clearly came out the presentation is that that's going to rise up to 25 percent potentially in time which is Staggering, So this is a a great solution to certainly help that uh, positively impact that. We talked with Hufer about the commercialisation. Yes, the passenger element, I'll come back to the passenger element, is really interesting. But what was really interesting for me is is potentially where this brand, this organisation could go in the logistics field, given the amount of logistics and certainly uh, demand on supply chain, uh, certainly currently. I decided to sort of pick up pick on him a little bit in two particular areas one going back to that passenger was experience was all about actually what's the flight time versus a conventional aircraft and he gave us a great answer he talked about don't think about the flight time think about the experience when you have to arrive to the airport you have to go through security etc etc and and just really the nature of the accessibility of this and the way that this works means that actually the flight time is longer but the actual overall experience in terms of time actually could be reduced so I thought that was a really neat way to to look at that. The second which really surprised me was actually the price differentiation versus normal aircraft or normal aviation and the stat that we were given today is that actually they expect that to be somewhere between 10 and 15% more cost effective for an individual flying via this means so I thought that was particularly scalable when it comes to commercialization so yeah huge huge future given the pipeline that you've already talked about and again really excited to see where this one's going to go
2: yeah just to add on to that that was fascinating about the thinking about the sort of total journey time that steve just mentioned because one of the key differentiators here is that you know these vehicles will not need a runway and all the infrastructure that's normally connected with an airport to deliver on their product so he talked about the fact that they can take off from marshland, from sand, from water even. So when you're thinking about sort of short-haul flights that would take an hour, and that sounds great, this would take quite a lot longer than that. But if you can literally take off from the port by the hotel where you've been staying on the coast in Spain and avoid that hour drive out to the airport, it all starts to make a difference to that total journey time from the moment you leave your home. Or
0: Last word from Clive.
4: Thank you, Arlene. So, look, I'm just a humble chartered accountant. So, some of the brain power shown by Hoofer and the team—it's fair to say—slightly uh, mind-blowing. The fl- you know, lots, There's so many bits of innovation in this, ranging from you no know, runways, ninety percent carbon, you know, emission decreases, floor-to-ceiling windows in planes. So, it's so many different bits of what they're building. And then thinking around so coventry for example in the west midlands in which we sit is one of the first sites in the uk to have a an airport built in the city center for flight aircraft to take off from there's an experiment with new types of transport i believe sponsored by the mayor authority but in a city aircraft uh, takeoff essentially that tends to blow your mind when you think about simple things like you know queuing at the airport driving to the airport Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I guess the two questions, if I, if I do what I'm here today for, which is think about the innovation here and then the risks therein and how we judge that comparable to the other three. A, this is a mission critical business. One small incident could, and we touched upon that a little bit in our questions, and Hoosha was very good in terms of answering that. But that does beg the question yet. We're talking about a product that hasn't been delivered yet, and we, we should debate that when we talk around the judging therein. And then the second thing is just simply the sort of the, the where they are in that stage of commercialisation. Three years away, four years away, it's still a long way to deliver the product with orders and the like. And therefore, it's still a risk as we sit today. Now, that's just because I'm, a, I guess, a chartered accountant looking at glass <laughs> up empty. But so much to like about the team, what they're doing. Uh, and what a great backstory in terms of the inventor sitting in a pub, thinking, being challenged basically about, you know, could he do this differently? Fantastic story.
0: Now, let's hear from the finalists in Bristol, starting with. Neighborly. I'm going to start
7: by actually sort of borrowing a line from Paul Pullman, who's the ex-CEO of, of Unilever, who said that businesses can't succeed in societies that fail. And when you look at Neighborly's purpose and mission, uh, which is to put local impact at the heart of responsible business, I think that you know, really sort of sets the scene for what Neighborly as a platform is all about, which is about connecting businesses with local good causes so to, to Martin's point about you know, what are we disrupting, I would say we are disrupting the charitable giving space. And that's very much sort of through the eyes of the, of the business community. So we're very much sort of working with corporate partners to, to do that. Um, and so we have businesses on one side of the platform, they are donating their time, so volunteering time, financial support, that might be in the form of fundraising, it might be community grants, it might be match funding, or they're donating surplus product. And that is often related to food, So, for example, we do all of the daily back-of-store food surplus redistribution for Sainsbury's, for Lidl, for Aldi, for M&S, all across the UK. But we are managing those programs through the platform, connecting them with what is now over 21,000 vetted local good causes. So it's very much about how can we improve communities through corporate giving, if we can help build happy and healthy communities. That is good for business. So there is an obvious sort of return on investment there. And it was a very
0: persuasive presentation. Michelle, what did you think?
2: Yeah, this was a great story. And I loved how Steve opened by, I think he quoted one of the executives from Unilever, who had once said that businesses can't succeed in societies that fail. And he described that as sort of driving their purpose really, which I thought was quite powerful. Seeing businesses as stakeholders in communities and working with them, as you say, on all those ESG elements, matching up volunteer time, funds, excess food produce with local cause. And I think I was probably struck by the point that this has been done before, but that it tends to benefit those larger sort of national charities, maybe in terms of how, how this has been done in the past. And Nice that they're really focused on helping local, smaller causes. So, yeah, I love the story.
8: Nathan? Well, I mean, I I think exactly the same. And and what I'd I'd say, building on the point, the answer I thought was excellent about where you've got many of these companies focusing on the areas of the country that are not necessarily the areas in most need of support. Neighbourly can really advise and support how to get at the heart of those local initiatives where it's most needed. And that seems to be the real point of differentiation.
9: I I would agree with everything that's been said. I think what impressed me particularly is that in this sort of organisation, the challenge is very much about how you measure the impact of what charitable organisations get up to. And I think Steve was pretty compelling in pointing out the rigour with which the businesses who want to subscribe and join in and contribute as well as the charities who are going to benefit from it so yeah I'm thoroughly impressed. yeah
0: and it, it's actually quite a sophisticated operation he's running but actually at the core of it it's a very simple thing if they're really efficiently taking surplus produce surplus products from big retail groups and manufacturers and distributing them to local charities, that is a very useful social purpose. So that is Neighbourly. We also heard that it's expanding into the US on a sort of city by city basis. It could replicate itself very widely. It is a scalable business. So that was Neighbourly. The next one we met was Verto, represented by Tom Carr.
10: At Verto, we're trying to change an out-of-date industry and address both the global warming crisis and the housing crisis And one hits. By delivering energy-efficient homes, zero-carbon smart homes, and little by little, we're getting there. As a group of people, we're passionate about great design, we're passionate about technology and well-being, but above all, we're passionate about sustainability, because we came to the realisation that the house-building industry is, at its core and in its present form, deeply unsustainable. When we took a deep look into the industry as a whole, it was clear that in terms of the materials, the technology and the government policy, things hadn't changed or really progressed since the 1960s. According to the ONS, an average home produces six tonnes of CO2 a year. That's enough CO2 to fill an Olympic swimming pool. And with 21 million homes in the UK, the net result of this is that nearly a quarter of the UK's carbon emissions come from buildings. Our zero carbon smart homes are operationally zero carbon. This means from the moment that they're built, the people who live in it create zero carbon emissions. Meaning these homes are saving the six tonnes of normal house emits and a further two tonnes, that is eight tonnes annual saving for
0: every home built to Bertoge standard. Nick, you work in the housing space some of the time in housing associations. What what was your impression?
9: Well, first of all, there's no getting away from it that Tom Carr is a super salesman. He's a very engaging personality. I think a number of organisations would possibly claim that they produce zero or negative carbon emission homes. I don't think it's unique in that respect. I know within the last few weeks, I've seen other people with the same claim. However, I'm impressed with the way that he described their building processes but i was more impressed by the building management systems that are used in order to help people manage their energy bills and what differentiates verto from others for me is the continuing relationship with the homeowner once a home has been built and sold so there is a constant flow of information back to verto which is then fed back to the homeowner enabling them to reduce their occupancy costs and i think that is in contrast to the traditional house builder, where once you've bought your home, you'll never see them for dust. So could break the mould.
0: Nathan, you're in student housing. How did this sound to you?
9: Yeah, I mean,
8: again, echoing the, the same point, really. It's, it's all in the building management system. That's the point of uniqueness here. I think, you know, alongside the passion, alongside the drive, the energy, the salesmanship, et cetera, That's all. that's all there in abundance. What they've got is an approach through their systems, both in the building phase and the, and the living phase, which absolutely could be translated into the student market. There are questions about where the students would pay the premium for those sort of systems, but putting that aside, it's that and you wonder whether there's a really exciting opportunity with the business to be able to start partnering with some of those larger house builders and utilising the building management systems that they've, uh, they've referred to.
0: Sam?
11: I was really impressed with just how they built this business themselves. I think looking at the funding initially, when someone gets together with their best mate and puts a bit of money into a business, I think that's brilliant. And they've done it with very little outside investment and they've grown it to the point now where they own a lot of land and they've got a lot of sites on the go. So I was I was super impressed with that.
0: Great. Okay. Moving on. Third one we heard from, it's called Zap Map. It's in the electric vehicle space.
2: We are the UK's leading electric vehicle mapping service. Uh, Really we're very much a purpose driven company and our mission is to help accelerate that shift from petrol and diesel cars to electric cars so that we move to a a low low carbon mobility future. At the moment there are 500,000 pure electric drivers out there on the road and that's around 2% of all cars out there. However, When you look at 2022, one in seven of all new cars are electric. And by the time the new car sale petrol and diesel ban comes in in 2030, that will be 10 million electric cars. So 33 percent or around 30 percent of all cars on the road will be electric. So it's a really exciting market. And we're really pleased to be in the market, early movers. And out of those 500,000 electric vehicle drivers, we have a registered user base of around 400,000. So we're very much the market leaders.
0: Michelle, what did you think?
2: Yeah, another great business, Martin. Obviously, they are the market leader already. She talked about, I think they cover more than 95% of the publicly available charging points at the moment. And 70% of those provide live data, which is obviously what the users really need in terms of, are these actually available for me to drive to right now? Multiple revenue streams, obviously advertising selling the data and analysis and insights and then partnership and subscription revenues. So clearly a brilliant business. Also looking to expand into the US, which would obviously be a game changer in terms of the size of market, but they've certainly proven that, that they can run and, and implement the model.
0: Yeah, and in a way, it's a sort of transitional phase of the electric vehicle business. It needs things like Map to get it going. That in the long term, you would imagine everything they are offering would be in every car. But we're a very, very long way from that. And they can adapt and improve much more efficiently and quickly than big, big automotive manufacturers can. That was that, Matt. Next is Octopus Hydrogen.
12: So we are a green hydrogen producer, developer, as one part of our business. And the other part is a tech business, which is about how do we produce hydrogen at the lowest cost possible for our customers so a bit like I suppose building homes as part of it and then having the technology as the other part there's an asset play and then there's a technology play behind all of this so I suppose the first thing to start with is actually like why hydrogen at all in the decarbonisation so I'm not gonna sit here and say that we should use hydrogen in boilers we believe in it for things like heavy goods vehicles trains planes industrial processes. So that's where our focus is as a company. So we work with renewable developers, solar farms, wind farms, to understand where around the country it makes sense to site hydrogen production. Our first third party will be on our platform, currently going through implementation in the next couple of months, and they'll be using it in earnest to run their electrolyzers in the Midlands to produce green hydrogen for national express buses.
0: Sam, what was your view of this one? Martin, I was struck by the
11: intellect of the founders, by the science involved, and I, I can't say I understood everything in the presentation. However, hydrogen is, is clearly an area which is of great interest to all governments around the world who are looking at alternative sources of energy. This is, this is a really interesting area of the energy market, and hats off to any entrepreneur involved in it. So I was fascinated by the story. Would love to understand a little bit more about what the end uses are and how far really we are away from actually seeing the fruits of this science. But was very interested to hear the story.
9: Nick? Yeah, this is, this is a um, fascinating business. It's quite clear that hydrogen is an important component in our future renewable energy, uh, the, the tools that we have to replace fossil fuels. Key to so many of the things we've heard about today are the development of proprietary software. And this is no exception. The really clever bit is about the deployment of proprietary software. And I think it's, you know, the sky's the limit with the backing of a big organisation like Octopus. Although, you know, any energy company at the moment has its challenges. In the longer term, the question for all of them is how they adapt to changing environments and how that software continues to be maintained, kept up to date and is relevant to changing requirements. But no, most impressed.
0: So that's it for this podcast in the series. Do join us again. Stay with us to the end and find out who wins the Spectator Economic Innovator Awards of the year 2022. Thank you very much.
13: You can create new ways of operating, you can
6: create new connections, you can get into places which are hard to access, and you can do that without building road, railways, deep water ports. Um. I'm sure if I went around the table and I asked, you know, asked everyone about the importance that aviation has played to the world, uh, up we're until talking this point, 20, everyone would say it's been a hugely beneficial thing. 20, uh, 20 it 50. creates networks. It so airland logistics the same created millions of large jobs around the, the world and critically, because it creates connections we've got to the people, the community But what and we do in addition to So as we the go forward from this point in time, those kind of connections are created. To maintaining a connected world is going to retain being critically important. But we can't sit here and ignore what the emissions impact of the aviation industry is on on the world. And so if we're serious about meeting our our, our net zero targets, if we're serious about being there by 2050, both at a a global level but also within aviation, then drastic change is needed. We can't continue to increment change. Driving 3 or 4% engine efficiency simply isn't going to cut it we've got to look at whole-scale transformational change within the industry and in technological innovation. Simply, otherwise we're simply not
13: going to get there. So in, uh, in my business, in hybrid air vehicles, As we sit here today aviation accounts
6: for about 3% of global emissions but as we go forward that is set to rise sharply and depending on what forecasts you look at the number of you know the flight capacity globally between now and 2050 is forecast to either double or triple depending on what market surveys
13: you look at. Um, We've taken Airlander
6: to full-scale prototype prior to now, we're now at the point really of commercializing this this technology. Um, So uh, earlier this year we've taken a a reservation from Air Nostrum who are Spain's largest independently owned regional airline, you won't know them as a brand but they operate under the Iberia brand. Um, They want to be able to continue to deliver regional mobility to their customers, so journeys up to 400 kilometres, but they want to be able to do that while taking emissions out of those journeys, and we can do that. We can deliver 100 passengers on on Airlander, and that's with our entry-level product. Not only will we be taking emissions out, but actually, and I'll share some um, photos of the interiors of it afterwards so people can visualise it, it's a much nicer flight environment. We fly lower, we can have fresh air into the cabin, we have more space per passenger than on a fixed-wing aircraft, we've got floor-to-ceiling windows, so it's a much nicer environment. It's also quieter on Airlander because our engines simply don't need to use so much power. Um, we're also looking at logistics use cases, so that ability to go from t- Anywhere to Anywhere means the logistics market is a
13: huge opportunity for us, we're working with the Highlands and Islands Airports Group, um, Infinity, who are a
6: wind turbine manufacturer, um, and and also other customers um, such as military and defence customers who want to be able to get logistics into hard to access areas. The final
13: vertical that we touch on is, is really on um, communications and security. we're also um, as we get ready to launch we're working with organisations like Collins
6: Aerospace one of the big set against that background and well. rising volume they in the aerospace are a spoke developing more motors for our electrocarbona we can take that so 90% saving by the middle of the decade by twenty 50, we don't have it could be over 20% of our entry level product 10 tonnes or 100 passengers scales into a tonnes and then 200 tonnes. so the market opportunity here and the potential here is the capability due to its efficiency here today, today, we've got 750 million dollars worth of aircraft under paid reservation.
9: We've got an order that's pipe, uh, we've got a, uh, a pipeline that, that we're LL working on, which aircraft, aircraft, is over 7 so billion. Huge sales
6: opportunities. Benefit benefit, but, but when you look at those logistics markets, when, when you look at the defense positions, the overall scale of this total addressable market quickly racks up to over a trillion dollars over the next 20 years. So, there is a vast economic opportunity here. There is an opportunity to take emissions out of aviation early in the cycle, which other technologies cannot do at scale. There's the opportunity to put Britain at the forefront of, of the green aviation revolution and to be the lead in decarbonising one, you know, one of the hardest industries to decarbonise. And ultimately to end up delivering a planet which is in a better condition
13: for generations to come.
9: So,
6: um, so with the way we're approaching market is to bring the Airlander ten into market first. That's the aircraft that we've taken to full-scale prototype, flown. We're, we're now ready to start manufacture on, and we're building that 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 order book. Um, so, you know, in terms of delivering that to market, that's really about we rely quite heavily on our supply chain. So. Us as a business, we're really a mission. We're we're really a, an IP house and a systems integrator, but we're not going to be manufacturing our engines. You know, the the, the fabric from the hull comes from um, from ILC Dover, who one of the preeminent fabric um, companies in, in the world in in the US. So it's really about managing your supply, owning the IP, about managing the supply chain, pulling that together and integrating that here in the UK for delivery on into the customer base. Um, Once we get to that rate manufacture of 24 aircraft per annum, that makes us about 1.6 billion turnover business. Where we're then going to really be looking for growth is about reinvesting free cash flow into the larger aircraft size. So we then develop into the Airlander 50 product, that gets us into 50 tonne. Um, lift capability that gets you into the core competence of the heavy lift logistics market, and thereafter then into the Airlander two hundred, which is a two hundred lift capability, two hundred ton lift capability aircraft. So it's really about moving up through the product family, um, and 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 adding that into your economic proposition as you drive forward
13: and managing the supply chain as as you go through that. Thank you.
6: So the market we 've we've, we've done quite a lot of work and we 've done quite a lot of work with sort of independent market specialists who have gone out and looked at at, at the aircraft and competed it from a sort of cost and performance mm. point of view um, and then said what they believe that that market is mm. um, so current surveys here which set of identified opportunities we 've got about seventy billion to be going at. The market surveys say that's broadly going to be split about 50 percent um, between long endurance flight use cases and fifty percent between sort of logistics and, and and heavy lift use cases. So that's broadly how it splits out. Um, as we're seeing the, um, the 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 pipeline develop, actually that's being supported by customer interactions at the moment, but. If you had asked me pre-pandemic what proportion of the um, short-haul aviation market we would have been much more conservative than where we are now, there's such a huge change going on in aviation and actually it's driving a change in, in customer behaviours that my personal view is that the mobility part of the market is going to prove <coughs> out to be bigger than, than, than we currently expect.
3: Um, just on the pipeline, you mentioned pipeline, yep. is that committed pipeline or is that forecasted pipeline?
6: So we got $750 million under d- deposit paid reservations, so there are monies held in escrow, so um, that's for stage one of contract effectively.
0: But 750 is the total cost and the deposit is a smaller.
6: Yes, exactly, I- exactly. because I'm not currently making their aircraft, so I can't currently, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're just at the point of crystallising our production programme, which, mm-hmm. which we're literally working to get um, get going before the end of the year. Um, the $7 billion is Active, so I can tell you which customer name, how many aircraft they're interested in. So that's detail. You know, that's detail. Pipeline we're working. There is then obviously between that seven billion we're currently working, and the seventy billion we've got identified. There's the gap.
3: And then just sort of a a part B to that question in terms of in terms of scaling and commercializing the passenger element. Mm -hmm. A price per seat here, if you're Iberia, Mm -hmm. pricing this versus a, I'll call it a
6: not-so-good aircraft for the environment? So we, before Air Nostrum placed the reservation, they operate under Iberia Brand, but it's Air Nostrum, I just need to be careful. <laughs> okay. um, before Air Nostrum placed the reservation, we did a lot of work with them, which looked, they cost-competed our aircraft against the existing aircraft in their fleet. Without any price escalation for fuel, any taxing, any anything, we were coming in at, at, at about 10 to 15% cheaper in today's money. My expectation is that as... Short haul aviation begins taxed, or you know things are going to kick in to to to, to increase that cap.
3: Okay, thank you.
4: Right. Thank you for that. A very different question. Um, I'm interested. You said two families, so I'm interested in the, the moment that two families sat down in the pub, the coffee shop. How did, how, who had the idea? Where did the innovation?
6: So the original innovation um, came from a man called Roger Monk. So he was the original. Um, Technology officer for for for, for the business, um, and the he was a he was a lighter than air engineer and had made many conventionally shaped um, airships. If you go back through sort of UK airship history, Rogers very heavily involved. Um, the story goes that he was in the pub one day and he was basically told that airships would never make a um, would never find a sizeable foothold in the aviation industry. Because, um, because of a number of issues they have. They've got poor ground handling, they've got a buoyancy issue that when you take uh, a kilo of, or a ton of payload off them, you get a ton of excess buoyancy because they fly because of um, an equilibrium or um, lots of ground handling costs, poor air handling, you know. And Roger said, well, I can design an aircraft which will solve all of those things. And so what he actually ended up doing was designing a heavier-than-air aircraft which confusingly sits in the lighter-than-air industry, but it's a heavier-than-air aircraft, flies because of aerodynamics, and only supplements its efficiency with the helium. And this was his brainchild and his innovation.
4: And the two families come in where? The, the
6: two families came in... Um, Actually, slightly before the uh, before the founding of this business, they came in in a predecessor business where they were both investors. But then they they, they reinvested in this business and have carried it forward since then. Uh,
0: very good. Uh, just a word about commercialisation. We ha- we have a sort
13: of fuzzy line in, in this award scheme. Um, we're. we're Currently in the process
6: of um, closing a seventy million fundraising, which will launch the production program. Our plans thereafter is to list the business, and we're looking at listing in both the UK and the US markets. Mm. Um, and we've got our advisors in place and on board to do that quite quickly. Um, and so, by going that route, we you know we've got access to capital, and we we can we can retain this business. If someone steps forward at a point in time and, you know, makes an offer for the business, then ultimately that will be a decision for the shareholders rather than the, you know, rather than the management team. But, um, you know, the the people who work within this business absolutely love what we're doing and, and are committed to it. So we'll crack on with doing the job we've got before us.
13: Okay, marvelous. thank you. An accident could do terrible harm, mm. couldn't it? So the safety
0: aspect
13: of developing a product like right? that. Is yeah. So, we started by
14: doing intensive business development. Now, full disclosure: I don't have a background in oilfield. I don't come from a, a, a country that has an oil and gas industry. You know, I didn't work in Slumberger. Our approach was to do intensive business development, and in practice, that meant spending a week, you know, maybe one week every month in Houston. Okay, and what I was trying to find was an opportunity that was. Big enough to matter to us, not big enough to matter to the big guys, but a good match for our crown jewels. If I could find an unmet need, if I could find a market opportunity where I could erect barriers to entry very, very quickly, I could achieve a monopoly. So I'm trying to find a niche. I'm trying to find a n- narrow market segment in a small UK business, okay, which doesn't necessarily have access to the kind of capital that a US competitor would have, and to establish a monopoly, okay.
13: So we. Did an awful lot of biz David. So although we're a UK-based business, just about everything we make
14: is exported. Just about everything we sell earns dollars and we spend pounds. So we export globally to the USA, Gulf of Mexico, South America, Azerbaijan. We're on every BP platform in the Caspian, Australia and, and Singapore. We developed a wireless network which could cope with the fact that we're in an environment where there's a lot of metal. So radio and metal generally aren't a good combination. We came up with a solution that overcame those problems and that's one of our barriers to entry. The other thing that we did was invest very heavily in intellectual property. At this point, we now have 70 granted patents and those patents are in various jurisdictions, most of the main OECD countries. Um, The business model is a combination of system sales but also there's recurring revenue, right? So we sell a service as well.
13: So fundamentally now, as a business, what we're telling is, okay, so our
14: customers get access to that information, we have a full stack, they can come in and look at that information in the cloud. So coming from outside the industry, we did some intensive business development. We found an amount need. We focused very aggressively on it. We erected barriers to entry, both technologically in terms of our wireless network, also in terms of patent portfolio, and finally, certification and approvals. So there is a lot of certification and approvals required for this market. You need to develop and sell electronics that can work in a flammable atmosphere. So you have to prove that your electronics are not a spark risk, because there is always the risk of the leak of a flammable gas in an oil well. So intrinsic safety is one of the requirements that we have to meet and we were the first company in the marketplace to achieve that. Because of the volume and because of the number of working rigs, we're now in a point where we can say that we have the most wireless sensors installed in offshore drilling rigs globally. Nobody else has sold more wireless sensors than us. Okay, And we sell directly system sales but also aftermarket. All of our sales are direct, we haven't used channel, uh, my view was. When you're first bringing a, market to, a product to market, when you're driving adoption, you need to be in control. You need to be in control of your business development, in control of your marketing. You can't rely on channel until it's an established product. Uh, so we did the selling ourselves in countries like Brazil, South America, Guyana, USA, and so on. Um, we manufacture in the UK. Okay, One reason for that is currency, but the other reason was I wanted control, complete control of manufacturing because in the early stages when you're ramping up, there are problems. And it's important that you can get in there and solve those problems very quickly. So we make in the UK, but we sell abroad. There's another point that I wanna make, which is that there were other challenges uh, which we overcame in a fairly unique way. We're pretty contrarian as a business. You know, we, we, I'm actually gonna paraphrase one of your columns, Martin. We, we believe that sometimes it pays to zag when everyone else decided to zig, you know? And there is a view of net zero and ESG Uh, there is a marketplace, uh, I suppose, uh, a capital market, which is now quite hostile to fossil fuels. I took a contrarian view. I took the view that we're supplying a necessity to the businesses that supply a necessity. In other words, we're in the energy security market. You know, we're part of a energy security product, okay? And during COVID, when the oil price went to zero, I doubled and tripled down. I decided to invest further in our products. We didn't furlough any staff. We didn't send anyone home because we were a manufacturer. There was a loophole. We demanded that everybody come in. We didn't stop. We, could, we you know, we're the company the Guardian warned you, warned you about. You know, we were the people who were at work every day. Okay, and as a consequence of that, we reckoned that we could come out the other side having lapped our competitors. And it looks like that that has been the case. Um, the other thing as well is that for some time, yeah, for some time we've had a positive cash flow. Okay? and as a consequence of that we haven't had to take any government assistance or, or, uh, or finance.
0: And finally, mom incubators. So that was our lineup in Birmingham. Now let's hear from our finalists in Bristol, starting with Neighbourly. Now Verto. And finally, Zap Map. Hang on. Uh, Bristol Neighbour. Say that again. Uh, Now let's hear from the finalists in Bristol, starting with Neighbourly. Next is Octopus Hydrogen. Now let's hear from Verto. And finally, Zap Map. So that's it for this podcast in the series. Do join us again. Stay with us to the end and find out who wins the Spectator Economic Innovator Awards
13: of the Year 2022. Thank you very much. I'm going to start with Solunda.
0: Alan Finley, the founder, talked to us. Solunda makes sensors that are used principally on oil rigs, oil and gas platforms. They are attached to the stacks of pipes that those rigs and platforms use in very large quantities. And the sensors are there to measure whether there's likely to be a fault or a problem, which could be very easily a kind of million dollar problem if it develops. They're also safety items for other harsh environment industrial situations like railway depots, uh, railway engine repair places and so on. They can be attached to people, they can track people so that the people are not in danger, the machine can be switched off when the person is going past it, all that kind of thing. But they're basically sensors with a lot of patents, 70 patents to protect the intellectual property. And this was a a business driven by a search by its founders to find a business niche which they could exploit with their engineering and software skills and they found one and they have exploited it. So it's, it's a, a business driven by the business imperative rather than
13: the purpose that we sometimes talk about. So we did an awful lot of biz dev, ultimately we hit on a safety requirement in offshore drilling.
14: During the drilling process, you've probably seen it on TV, they trip pipe in and out of the hole. Okay? When the pipe is not in use, it's racked in an area inside the derrick, it's racked inside the fingerboard. So there's a rack where they put these things. Occasionally that rack malfunctions and pipe can fall, okay? and the consequences of that, worst case could be a fatality, best case. You know, there's an interruption to drilling and the economic value of that interruption is in the millions. For whatever reason, this opportunity had not been addressed. Nobody had executed on a solution to this problem. So we came up with a retrofitable wireless sensor that could be installed in pipe handling inside the derrick very, very quickly. And we focused on that. In a typical drilling rig, there's about a thousand of these racks, there's about a thousand of these fingers. So that means at least a thousand sensors. And there are many of these rigs around the world, there's several hundred working the whole time. We're telling customers what, what is going to happen before it happens. So if you can tell them that a safety barrier, if you can tell them that a piece of drilling equipment is out of spec,
13: if you can tell them that that equipment is going to fail, the value of that is an immense. It could be in the millions of dollars. But Steve, tell me what you thought of that
0: presentation.
3: Yeah, Alan did a phenomenal presentation, arguably uh, one of the more polished presentations this afternoon. Ridiculously uh, passionate, again, like all of the you know, the leaders here, in terms of what they built in their nine years of trading. Understood the maths very well as well, so we talk about purpose, we've talked about passion with the first two, but I also I'm a big believer that the maths have to work, as I said earlier. You know, they're focusing on the, the rig, oil rig market at the moment. Uh, as you said, Martin, they've got other additional revenue channels through, as you said, rail, etc. But the thing for me that stood out was not only the new business that they could win, but as Alan uh, described, their after service means that their recurring revenue over a long period of time is particularly interesting, certainly from an investment perspective. The outstanding element that he really highlighted was their approach, which is all about being direct to market. And the reason they've done that is to really understand the market better than anybody else, all about insight. He talks about he doesn't work with outside agencies. Everybody is employed within his organization because they understand the DNA of the organization better than anybody else. So, some real heart and soul. I can certainly see some of the big players trying to you know maybe defend around him so he's got to think about that as a real challenger brand and I think probably his biggest differentiator uh, with Zolando is going to be agility so uh, yeah very very interested to see uh, where these guys go in the future but yeah particularly great.
0: Clive?
4: Yeah look Alan's presentation was was clear direct to the point what's not to like about a business that you know has grown so quickly organically funded no external finance Help safety, protects people, is a proactive rather than reactive product in terms of the way it works. In other words, it can start to predict a mechanical failure ahead of the mechanism failing, so saving time, money, helping protect people and the like, and also his huge IP protection. So in terms of the great British invention story, huge amounts of light there. What I, what I was particularly struck by with Alan was that actually one of the difficulties of the entrepreneurial pathway is that lots of op- you can always see the world in opportunities, always more things you can sell to. more. more things to do. Alan was really clear about what he wasn't doing as well in that presentation. So when challenged about certain markets and other things, he was very clear on why he wouldn't do this particular market or that market. And the reason why as well, it wasn't a case of capacity or not getting there yet. No, we're fixed on here, we're going to move to there. That, I think, is is another reason why the business has been so successful late. So a hugely impressive presentation.
0: Thank you very much. Michelle, last word on that one.
2: Thank you, yes. I mean, obviously these awards have been set up to recognize UK-based businesses, but this is certainly a huge British success story. He talked about the fact that almost everything they make is exported, but everything is 100% made in the UK. So that's a lovely story. Also interesting, to Clive's point, about sort of having a view and being confident in sticking with that in terms of the energy crisis that we're seeing this year. You know, what that has taught us is that fossil fuels for now are not going anywhere so these rigs will continue to be very important they're of course starting to branch into other businesses rail as you said but also wind turbines and other renewables but he thinks that the main rig business that they started with will continue to be important for many years to come and I, I think that's right
0: yeah I think that was a sort of object lesson in you know building a business find a niche keep it tight protect your intellectual property. No debt, no outside investors, no distractions, as it were. A different kind of presenter might have made much more of how it could be applied to renewables and so on, but he was completely frank about that. He said fossil fuels, you know, we need them. This is a business that will thrive on selling a very, very useful product to the fossil fuel industry. It has some other applications, but our core activity is oil and gas rigs and platforms, and that's where we are you know, that's where we're focused. So I, th- I thought that was very impressively frank and articulate way of describing the way they've built their business. So our fourth entrant for this Midlands lunch